that this is not a typical Easter text, but one that we've been praying over and through and excited to share with you this morning. So this is Luke chapter 7, verses 11 and following. Soon after, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from that town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier, and the, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding countries. And then we all say together. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So wouldn't it be nice uh, to say that this is all true, that Easter morning was fundamentally, absolutely true? And I know some of you in here are saying, well, I would love for there to be more proof about this reality. Well, this morning using Luke chapter 7, we hope, if you're saying prove it, that we're able to do just that. So you have a text. It's Luke chapter 7. And we are walking alongside a narrative of a funeral. You may or may not know anything about Middle Eastern culture, much less Middle Eastern funerals. But here's what you've got. It was not an individualistic moment. It was actually a communal moment, meaning that everyone was impacted by the death of someone in a village. We are now in a town called Nain, right? It's smaller population, somewhere between three or four hundred, and it would not be unlikely that everyone in a town that side would gather around a funeral. Uh, in Jewish uh, culture, you've got to walk outside of the city to bury the person. They were not allowed to be buried inside, but you had to go outside of the walls. Not only that is once someone is deceased, you have 24 hours to bury that person. Most burials were at sundown, about 6 p.m. A normal American Western funeral, if you have it in your mind, uh, you can see the processional, can't you? You see the police as they escort. You can see the hearse. You see everyone's dressed in black. There are probably some Kleenex around. There's some small whimpering here or there. Everyone is remembering the deceased. In the Middle East, uh, the funerals are a little bit different, mainly in the makeup of the noise. You see, Amos chapter 5 tells us that, uh, that there was, it was encouraged for you to hire professional mourners, people who had like provocative nature of them that when they engaged something sad, they couldn't hold it inside. These professional mourners were, were asked to come alongside the family and the town to actually mourn on purpose, as well as flute players. So the noise alone would shock us. Not a quiet little cubicle, not a quiet casket, right? Instead, it was truly, it was earth-shaking with the amount of emotion that is there. So the whole city is there. All 
cities, or all funerals are sad, whether you are in the Middle East or just the 2023 in America, funerals are just that. They're sad. And the proof that they're sad is that we engage in a nature of sadness as we look into potentially an open casket and see the deceased there. My grandmother Winnie uh, passed away, and it was a spectacle like I'd never seen before. We grew up in Georgia. It's a small-ish town, but big enough to have a, a good long stretch of highway, Highway 2, that runs from the middle of town all the way to the outskirts, because that's where we also bury uh, the deceased in Georgia. I don't know if you're from the deep south, but there is a tradition on funeral day, especially someone like this. This is Grandmama Winnie, right? She was Mother Winnie. She just, everybody knew her. She, grew, she uh, raised six kids, and most people had great affection for her. But in the south, the procession is, of course, you've got the police, then the hearse, and then all of the family and the friends that are in the close inner circle. They either turn on their flashers or they turn on their lights and they form a single file line and they go all the way through traffic. They don't have to stop at red lights. They don't have to stop at uh, stop signs. Uh, they don't have to obey any rules because they're being behind the, the, the authorities and they truly just make their mark all through town. So not three miles or five miles, probably seven full miles, 15 full minutes of a single line procession. But here's what you may or may not know. That in the deep south, we show respect to our, um, to, uh, our dead. And so all along Highway 2, which is pretty straight, people would know the signs of a procession. And people pull to the side and they just park there and watch the procession go by. And so mile after mile after mile, being a part of this procession, we see it because funerals are sad. We've lost someone significant in us. Here in Luke chapter 7, we have a very sad situation. But we may not can see it without seeing the details is that we have a collision of two separate groups of People. You've got invited guests, right? But then you also have uninvited guests. You have this town of Nain, three or four hundred people gathered here to, to show honor to this widow. And we can see that uh, there is a town, the, the, a considerable crowd from the town is with her or with them. They're grieving. But you also have an uninvited guest. You have Jesus with his disciples and a great crowd. A great crowd. If you don't know, this phrase here is another phrase that we see when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. Meaning that whatever the considerable crowd is, probably three to 500, and the great crowd is probably in the thousands. So I want you to just visualize this collision of humanity, right? These two people groups that are truly coming together over and over and over. There's chaos. And with both of them looking at each other a little bit uh, skeptically. And so on one hand, you have a, a group of people that are grieving, like seriously grieving and mourning the death of this boy. But on the other hand, you have a totally different group of people. You see, Jesus has just come from Capernaum. In Capernaum, he has just done an amazing miracle. If the math is right and you've got his disciples and maybe a thousand people, they're walking with great expectation and joy and hope. And like Jesus is truly, he's drawing a crowd, but people are following him. From Capernaum to Nain is 25 miles. 
miles, meaning they've walked all day long. I've visualized it that there's probably horizon, maybe like an old battle scene or something, and cresting that horizon is a thousand uninvited people to your funeral, and there's just confusion everywhere. One is full of hope. The other group is full of absolute anguish. One crowd is devastated, while the other is fully expectant. This is one of the saddest song or saddest stories that you will see or hear or read in Luke's gospel. You see, this is a woman. And we tell, it's told us that she is a widow. And this widow is burying her son, not just her son, but her only son. And so just the funnel of despair just continues to get deeper and deeper and deeper as we understand the story is that she was grieving in a way that most people have never grieved. You see, she's led this procession before, hasn't she? Some months or years before, she's been in front of a crowd just like this. The town has assembled in the same way Except for this time, she has someone on her arm. You see, the first time she read the, led the procession, she was burying her husband at sundown. At least she had a son to prop on, someone to comfort her in her pain and misery. But on this day, in Luke chapter 7, she is literally all alone. She's lost everybody. The Middle Eastern culture is cruel in a lot of ways. You see, it's on behalf of the husband to take care of the wife, physically, emotionally, financially. If something happens to him, then it falls to the oldest son to do that. And it just continues to go. Here, this widow who's lost her husband is now not just a widow, but now she's all alone. There's no one to turn to. And so as she leads this procession, she is likely all by herself weeping in this moment. There's a procession of just sadness. She's all by herself. But then Jesus comes. Then we don't stay in despair and anguish always. But what do we see Jesus? In the actions of Jesus, we see him look at her. Out of all the people, out of all the people, you've got a thousand people behind him and 400 people in front. But we know that somehow the author was able to see that he zeroed in on her. Maybe it's because she was at the beginning of the procession or maybe it was just, just the, the languid look on her face fully and completely enmeshed in full despair. This is our Lord looking sternly fixed on her. Here in the passage is the first time in Luke's gospel that we see this word, Lord. This word, curios. Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. He loves details. Nothing is out of place. And yet we know that strategically, we know that Jesus is called Lord here because of the way that he sees her. He doesn't see the crowd. He sees her. 
Maybe, just maybe, you showed up on Easter because you feel like the Lord, Jesus, is okay with looking at crowds or looking at at just a mass population, but would never look at you. But here in the mass chaos and the collision of people, we know that Jesus truly looks at her fully and completely. You want proof that this lady is sad? Just look at her tears. Do you want proof that Jesus knows that this, who is the most important person in our passage this morning? Because he sees her fully and completely. He also sees you. What procession are you leading this morning? What season of despair are you a part of? What kinds of questions about Jesus or the Lord himself abandoning you in your time of need? The questions of where are you, Lord? In this passage, on a day that's supposed to be the darkest day, at least at this point, we know that God's eyes is fixed on the brokenhearted, not the crowds, not the chaos, not even the miracle. He is looking at her. And what do we see? We see him have compassion. This is the word of the text. This is the word and this is the characteristic of Jesus himself is that he has emotion. This is the primary emotion. What is compassion? It's this idea that you and I are able to walk in alongside or to enter into someone else's pain for you to truly empathize with them. So he does more than just see her. He empathizes with her. He walks literally alongside with you. A 25 mile hike. He's probably tired. He's probably thirsty. He's probably looking at Nain as a respite. But what does he do? He's fixated on the one that is truly in pain. And so this morning, do you feel like before Jesus can look at you, that you have to be all fixed up and ready to go? Do you feel like that you have to have your act together before the gaze of Jesus would ever glance your way? If you just took this one text alone, the opposite is more likely to be true. That in your weakest maybe even darkest moment, that's when you see God look at you because he's always about the ministry of compassion, coming alongside and entering your world. That is the ministry of Jesus, is to enter people's world, to feel pain. Over and over, we see this word compassion Jesus, one night, he's looking over and praying over Jerusalem. What do we find? We find compassion. In the Good Samaritan, in the prodigal son, what do we see or what do we find? We find compassion. You want proof that Jesus really wants and desires to walk alongside your icky life? A life that you would likely throw out? This is proof to you that he wants to come alongside you. But how do we know what compassion looks like? Right? When you kind of squint, you know, and you think about what compassion looks like, it's really hard, isn't it? Like you're just not sure exactly what you would make up. Now, if I was to say anger, 
Like, what does anger look like? Like, oh, check, check, check. Look in the mirror. I mean, like, this is just where we're, this is where we're at, right? And so if you look at anger, like, this, these are just telltale signs altogether. People are pointing. Frows are frowling. Foreheads are frowling. There we go. Uh, all kinds of things. There's a tone. There's like a tempo. Your, your, your heart is racing. I mean, you are ready to lean forward. I mean, you are ready to engage. This is, I mean, that's easy to point out. Let me just encourage you that in the same way that this is obvious to everyone that this is what anger looks like. It was obvious that day that Jesus had compassion on her. It was as obvious as this. That is our Savior this morning. But what does he do? What's he do? He doesn't just see, but he walks in and he says three simple words. Do not weep. That's what he has to offer her. Do not weep. But the scriptures tell us to have sackcloth and ashes on days like this. Do not weep. But did we just hire some professional mourners to do this thing that you are telling me not to do? And he says, do not weep. Is Jesus being cruel? I don't think so. Is he being harsh or stoic? No, I don't think so. Instead, he knows that there's something else that's about to come. And what he's saying, right, is the same thing that a mom or a dad says when he gets on his knee and the kid has fallen off a bike or fallen off of a trampoline and he or mom or dad gets down on their knees and was like, it's okay, honey, and tries to fix it up right away. Or just like a mom or a dad in middle school when your first crush dumps you and crushes your heart forever. And someone comes along and sides and says, it's okay. It's all right. Does it make the sting go away? No. It's like in high school and you have been just the star athlete or the star uh, pupil and somebody just got better overnight. And now your father or your mother has to sit next to you in a car and was like, it's okay. Or when you go through a tragedy for the first time as an adult and someone says, it's okay. And so when Jesus says, do not weep, he's not being cold or harsh. He's not trying to tell you to sweep your emotions under the rug, but he knows that there's a hope. He knows that there is a future. He knows that there's another page to turn in your life. She has no idea what's about to happen to her. But Jesus does, and that's the reason that he's able to come to her with confidence, maybe cold confidence, and say, it's okay, honey. It's okay. And so Jesus acts. He doesn't just use words, people. This is the Savior of Savior. He's the incarnate one. He is all about the tactile. He's not just about good words and preaching and words. He wants to act on our behalf. And so what does he do? He reaches out his hand and he touches this casket. He acts. You see, this 
only son was carried in and not a casket. The caskets can be closed. This is called a bier, right? B-I-E-R. It's an, it's an open stretch, stretcher. The best way to think about it is on a rescue mission, right? And you take this, the stretcher up into a mountain for a rescue. This is similar to that, meaning that you could see the dead body or at least a body that's shrouded in some way. And what does Jesus do? He come, does, he comes up and he touches the bier. And he brings everything to a halt. With this one touch, he halts everything. And at this point, both crowds are now paused. And the first, the pallbearers literally come to a stop, like, oh, you're telling me to stop. But now, the people who are following him, they've already given him the, the title Lord and priest and prophet. But now they've come to a still why? Because it is against the law for a prophet or a priest, a preacher, right? To touch a dead body, you'll defile it forever. To even come in this much contact with the deceased is against the law. And yet, what does Jesus do? He engages. He steps in, not just with compassion, but he comes alongside to truly to engage with your pain. To engage with where the darkest part of your life is. And so in the same way that we can see a police officer, right, waving his hands or having lights to be able to stop traffic, all that it took that day was simply Jesus reaching out to touch this open casket. But then, then, the best word in Luke chapter 7, and this is our Easter word, Jesus speaks again. He doesn't just reach in to touch, but he says, arise. He says, get up. You want proof of a dead man? Look at the open casket. But then this man gets up and Jesus gives this boy back to his mother. This is what we call reconciliation. And this is what Luke is trying to tell us in a real and a tangible way. This has happened over and over and over again, not just to dead boys and to mothers who are weeping, but to people like you and I who are literally dead in our sins and trespasses. And we need someone else to say, arise. This is our Easter message. Do you want proof? You want proof? The entire town of Nain will never be the same. With their own eyes, they're able to see this boy put in his right place and reconciled with his mother. And what we're saying this morning is the same proof is able this morning to understand that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. You may have your doubts this morning and that's okay. In the scriptures, there's people full of doubts. Probably the most famous is Doubting Thomas. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was buried in a cold, harsh grave. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And his disciples were scattered and did all kinds of stuff. And some people believed right away, but not Thomas. Thomas doubted. Thomas had questions. He even had a little wager. And he's like, I'm not going to believe until not only do I see the Lord, but I touch him, touch his wounds myself. Jesus Christ wasn't dismissive of doubting Thomas, was he? 
Instead, he, in the same way as he comes along, the brokenhearted, he actually encourages Thomas to touch him. So this is a famous uh, painting. And this is where all of our eyes are drawn is to this womb and to this finger. Truly, just it's almost too graphic to even look at. But this is Doubting Thomas. Caravaggio was brilliant in a lot of ways. Caravaggio did not want you to look at the finger going into the flesh. Instead, in a graphic way, he's drawing a dome to draw your center, to be able to draw these four heads at a climax so that you will see the brightest part of this painting would be doubting Thomas's forehead. Because he knew that we all have our doubts. And in a beautiful display of give me proof, he knows that what Jesus is about to do is to change this man's life forever. And this is what Jesus does. Over and over and over again, he changes our lives. This morning, we want you to trust in Jesus. You're like, yeah, but would it be nice if I could touch Just know that Doubting Thomas turned to a believer just like this. Doubting Thomas then was able to be a witness forever. And here 2,000 years later, we haven't changed the message. It's old and stale and redundant. And yet this message has changed our lives in a way that we will never be the same. So this morning is Jesus. Jesus tells us that I am the resurrection and the life. He tells us that we are Christos Victor, meaning he has conquered sin and death. So much so, we love Easter so much around here that we named our church after this this weekend. Red stands for the blood of Christ Jesus that was shed for your sin and mine. The stone stands for the stone that was guarding the tomb on Easter morning. The the stone that was so heavy and too so strong, it would be immovable. And yet, with the resurrection of Jesus, not only does he walk out of that tomb, but that stone was rolled away on Easter morning so that we can become this. We can become the church, people who follow after him in full and complete obedience. There may be some in here who do not have a walk with Jesus this morning who find yourself more, having more doubts and more questions than certainty. You want proof? We just want to point you to three simple words this morning. To follow Jesus, to start a relationship with him this morning. It's simply to understand his sacrifice was for you. The victory that he experienced, he also gives you. And then he gives you a brand new purpose. We should be enjoying Easter egg hunts and grandma's cookies rather than gathering here. But there's something better than food and better than fellowship. It's Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus um, uh, uh, resurrected this morning. So I wanted to point to you, there is a response card. And I'm going to give you a couple of minutes. You all have a response card and, and a pen. 
We want you all, whether you have been at Redstone Church 10 years, because that's how old we are, right? Or this is the first time you just accidentally tripped into this place. It was like, how did I get duped into this? We just want you all to be able to respond in some way because we all need prayer. We all need, um, um, we all need uh, to know exactly where our relationship is. So you can ask for prayer. You can ask for a follow-up with a pastor. Or for some of you, there may be a time where you are starting a relationship with Jesus this morning because you needed proof. And in your heart of hearts, you know that Jesus has truly died for your sin and conquered sin and death for us. So I'll give you a few minutes. Let's pray. Some of you are far from Jesus this morning, but want to change that, want to come into a relationship with this one who conquered sin and death, who promises a brand new purpose for your life. I would encourage you the boldness just to check that box and we can find a way to be in touch with you this week. We would just encourage you just with that faith step in the same way of these testimonies of baptism, that that would be your faith step this morning as a simple check saying, I want another conversation with somebody. So King Jesus, do the heavy lifting this morning. Draw people to yourself. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.